We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll look today at verses 5 through 7. Last week, we saw what God has done for us in verses 1 through 4. And now, Peter redirects our focus to what believers should be doing. And when you get saved, uh, you might have thought way back then, this is a, you know, fantastic, I, I, I sense that I'm loved by God, I'm forgiven of my sins. Um, eventually comes around this one question. It may take just a few moments or it may take a long time before you ask this question, but it, it eventually comes about. The question is this, now what? Now that I'm saved, what's next? Well, what's next in your salvation and the living out of your faith and your relationship to Jesus is spiritual growth. Now, spiritual growth is like any other kind of growth. You think about the growth of a child. What does that child need? Well, he needs food. He needs shelter. He needs love, support. He needs all kinds of things. He needs some uh, liquid. He needs all kinds of things to grow and to be a healthy child. If he doesn't receive those resources, if his parents don't give him those resources, that child will not grow. You think about a plant. What does a plant need? A plant needs a certain amount of water, a certain amount of sunshine, Every plant is a little bit different, but these are some of the requirements that a plant needs if it's going to grow. What about a Christian? For a Christian to grow, what is necessary? Well, the thing about the Christian faith is that your spiritual growth uh, very much is dependent on what God has given us. And he, we learned last week that he's provided everything that we need for life and godliness. Verse 3 says that in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's given us everything for life and godliness. And so there's nothing that we lack. There's nothing more that, that God has to grant us that we, don't, that we already um, fail to have. And so God has given us everything that we need. Some of your growth is going to be dependent upon uh, spiritual parents. By spiritual parents, I mean those people that in the formative years, the early years of your Christian development... They provided you with counsel. They provided you with understanding the Word of God. You could come to them for questions. And so they were the ones that could help you in that manner. But eventually, your spiritual growth will depend very much upon you. God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. The church is here to provide you with um, ample opportunity to hear the Word of God taught, hear the Word of God preached and to worship the, the Lord together with His family. The church provides encouragement for you. The church provides so many resources that God has given us together for the benefit of all. But there will come a time fairly soon in your spiritual journey after you receive Christ that you understand that there must be effort on my part if I'm going to grow as a Christian. And so if you're going to grow... It requires effort. It requires a sense of responsibility, self-responsibility. When you reach that time in your kids' lives when they're growing up and they don't want to do their homework, they're too smart to do their homework, but eventually they get to a point, maybe in college, maybe in high school, maybe forever, that they realize, I've got to take this seriously. And I have to have a sense of self-responsibility, otherwise I'm not going to do really good in my academics, or I'm not going to really do really good in my career. 
The same thing is true for us spiritually. It requires a sense of responsibility, self-responsibility, if we're going to grow as God desires that we grow. Now, spiritual growth won't happen if you're lazy. Spiritual growth won't happen if you're careless. Spiritual growth won't happen if you're negligent. If you don't feed yourself on a daily basis from the Word of God, it's simply not going to happen. I hear a lot of people justify why they don't grow more spiritually. People say things like, well, I need a new experience. It's great when I got saved, but I need new experiences. Or they say, well, you know, the Bible's not enough. The people who always say the Bible's not enough are people that don't read their Bible. But they say the Bible's not enough. Or I've even heard people say, well, Jesus isn't enough. I need something more. But if the eternal God of the universe is not enough for you, I, I would dare to say that you're probably not for lack of a better term, tapping into who He truly is. You're not connecting with Him. You're not abiding in His presence. People give all kinds of justifications why they're not more spiritual. But again, verse 3 says that God's divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And so I want us to read again these first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll continue reading all the way through verse 9, because I want us to hear the context of what Peter was saying to the church. In verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 1, we read, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's this message. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In verses 5 through 7, we have this incredible list of things that need to be a part of our lives. And these are resources that God has given us, resources that we already have, resources that Peter says, through our efforts, through our intentionality, through our self-responsibility, we can grow in these things. But these things are already yours. They already belong to you. And so in verses 5 through 7, we have this, this fantastic list of resources that God has given us. And the very first one is faith. Faith. What's faith? It's simply trusting God. 
It's listed first out of all these fantastic qualities because it marks the beginning of your life with Jesus. When you first began your journey with Jesus, when you first came to know Him, when you received Him as Lord, you received Him through faith. Through faith. And so faith is listed first. You cannot be a Christian without faith. People think that they're a Christian. If you ask people in the community, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I grew up in a Catholic home. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, my dad was a Baptist deacon. Listen, being born in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. I was born in a hospital. I'm not a, I'm not a nurse. Being the place where you're born, the environment in which you are raised, does not make you a Christian. There has to be a personal component of faith, personal belief, personal trust in God. Scripture says without faith it is impossible to please God. So you can take someone who's an atheist, who has no faith in God, doesn't believe in God in any sense or, or, or any type of account, and they might be the nicest person in the world. They might spend their days helping little old ladies across the street. They might give half of their money away. They might be a, a better moral person than the Christian who sits next to them at the bus stop. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must have faith. Why is, why is that? Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Well, it's because you're not good enough. It's because you can't go to church enough to please God. It's because you can't give enough to please God. There's one thing that pleases God. Believing Him. Trusting in Him. That is what pleases God. And so faith is listed first. Peter says in verse 5 again, Now for this very reason also, supplying all diligence. In your faith, he says, supply moral excellence. So you have a faith in Jesus Christ. You have a trust in the Lord. Now add to that moral excellence. Build on that foundation. How do you build on that foundation? You add moral excellence to your life. We're talking about virtue. Virtue. Virtue, moral excellence, ethical living is the proof of your faith. In other words, if you say that you're a Christian, you say those words, I say that I believe in God, but your life shows that you're living an unethical type of existence, you're immoral in your behavior, your actions are saying something other than your words. And so your moral excellence is the proof, one of the proofs of your faith. Decades ago, a guy by the name of Edward Gibbon wrote a book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he listed, essentially, five major reasons why the Roman Empire fell. The greatest, grandest empire ever known to mankind it eventually fell under its own weight. One of the reasons, and I'll list these five, was the rapid increase in divorce. Why did he believe that helped the Roman Empire to fall? Because he knew that marriage was the basis of human society. Without marriage, human society begins to fall apart. Government cannot be your mommy. Government cannot be your nanny. 
Government cannot raise kids. It takes a family. It takes a mom. It takes a dad. That's the foundation of human society. It's the basis. And divorce undermines the dignity and the sanctity of the home. It's not the divorce, if you go through a divorce, you've committed the unpardonable sin. No, no, not that whatsoever. But it's that divorce is very serious, and it undermines the stability of the environment in which the kids are raised. Secondly, he said high taxes help bring down the fall of the Roman Empire. High taxes specifically, taxes were being raised in order to supply people with bread. There was an increasing welfare state in the Roman government. And so more and more taxes were needed to dole out more and more benefits to the populace. And it's an unsustainable economic pro proposition. In fact, the government back then were paying for circuses for the populace. We need more and more entertainment. In fact, that was the third thing that he listed. There was a craze in that day for pleasure. Uh, people wanted more and more entertainment, poured more and more life into needing entertainment, and the entertainment that they used to enjoy wasn't good enough anymore. And so the sports that they engaged in became more and more brutal just to maintain the public interest until finally it became a situation where people were being harmed and even killed for the enjoyment of the populace. That type of moral depravity eats away at society. A fourth thing that he found was the massive expansion of military funding. Rome built greater and greater armies, bigger and bigger armies, and the problem with that was not the barbarians at the gate, but that it was the barbarians that were already there. Rome fell from within. The true enemy was themselves, not those that were at their borders. And the fifth thing that he found that led to the decline of the Roman Empire was the decay of faith. Faith became less and less important. Faith faded into a mere ritual. There wasn't anything authentic about it. It was just the form of godliness. And so the people that were in charge of keeping people faithful to God began to lose touch with real life. They were unable to guide people. They were unable to help the people understand the need for morality, for moral excellence. Peter said, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, make sure you add to that a foundation of moral excellence, virtue in your life. Be a virtuous person. Next, you add to that knowledge. He says in verse 5, in your moral excellence, knowledge. Supply knowledge to your moral excellence. What is knowledge to Peter? Is knowledge understanding the incredible atmospheric conditions of the weather? Is knowledge to Peter... Um, understanding the situations of the day and understanding what the politicians are doing? No. For Peter, knowledge meant a knowledge of God's will. 
understanding the will of God. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about what, we're, what it means when we say, I want to know God's will. People usually think, well, you know, what, when I want to know God's will, it means what, what job should I take? I've got a couple of options here. I want to know God's will as to which job I should take. Or I want to know God's will, which college should I attend? Or I want to know God's will, uh, you know, what person should I marry? Now, those are important questions. But to Peter, when he's talking about knowing the will of God, he's not talking about the specific situations of life. In the Bible, God's will and, the, and understanding God's will means this, discerning right from wrong. Discerning right from wrong. Here's the will of God according to Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for you? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks for everything. That's God's will. So the next time you're wondering, what's God's will? God's will for you is to rejoice to pray at all times, and to give thanks for everything. That's the will of God. And so add that to the virtues, to the moral excellence in your life. And once you add that, you also need to add self-control. Make sure that self-control is the next one in the list in verse uh, 6. Restraint from sinful desires. That's what self-control is. In fact, that same... That same uh, book that I just quoted in 1 Thessalonians, it tells us what else is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's the will of God according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians? To be holy, to rejoice, to pray at all times, to give thanks for everything. That's the will of God. Now, which job should you take? Maybe it doesn't matter. As long as you're holy, as long as you rejoice, you pray, and you give thanks. What college should you go to? Whatever college you want to. But just make sure that you're holy, that you rejoice, that you pray, that you give thanks. That's the will of God. Peter says, make sure you're a person of self-control. You restrain yourself from sinful desires. And to your self-control, Peter says, to add perseverance. Perseverance. You know what it means to persevere? It means to endure. It means to be steadfast. I love that term. Steadfast. No matter what comes up against you, in your faith. You don't give up. But you continue to obey the Lord. You have staying power during difficult times. And so you're steadfast. You persevere. To that, Peter says, add godliness. Godliness is simply living like Jesus. And that's the question. How did Jesus live? How did he live? Think about how he lived. As a human, how did he live? Because he was human. He is human. How did Jesus live when he was here on this earth? You go back and you study the life of Jesus, you'll determine very quickly that he is, he was very dependent on God. He depended on God for everything. 
He was, de- he was devoted to God's will. You know, it's become sort of a trite saying, but I think it, it's very much true when you're trying to be someone that is a godly person, ask yourself this question, what would Jesus do? What would he do if he were in my shoes, if he was in this situation? What would Jesus do? To that, to godliness, you add brotherly kindness. Make sure that you're kind to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, there's enough meanness in the world. We don't need to add to it. If there should ever be a safe place, it should be the home. By the home, I'm talking about the church, the spiritual home for all of us. This should be a safe place, a place where we're not attacked, the place where we can be ourselves, a place where we can receive love and encouragement. Uh, Hopefully we'll never come to the point where uh, a a church that we're a part of becomes a vicious place, a mean-spirited place. That's no fun. But be kind to your brothers in Christ. Paul says in Romans 12:10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are, claim to be Christians today, but they don't go to church. They got turned off. They, someone was ugly to them. Uh, they get bored, whatever it is. But they are not involved in church. Some actually have gotten to the point where they say, I hate the church. I hate going to church, but, I, but I'm a Christian. Listen, according to what Scripture says, it's impossible to love Jesus and hate his family. It's impossible to love Jesus and to hate his family. And so be kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, to your brotherly kindness, we add the most important quality, which is love. What's love? Love is selfless. Love is active. It means you're doing something. Love is sacrificial. It means that it causes you a sense of loss in order to love someone. It causes you to expend some effort and some energy in order to love someone. And love is always affectionate as well. Peter says you have all of these qualities that God has given you. They're already yours. Make sure that they're a part of your life. Now, if you do this, what will the results be? We read about this in verses 8 and 9. And I've got three questions for you. Number one, are you active in your faith or are you idle in your faith? Look how verse 8 begins. Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. You're not useless if these qualities are part of your life. But if you claim to be a Christian and the qualities that we just read about in verses 5 through 7 are not indicative of who you are, then it very well could be that you're useless in your faith. That your faith is useless to you. That your faith is idle. So let me ask you, what exactly do you do for Christ and His church? If you say that you're active in your faith, what exactly do you do for Christ and His church? 
We are to be active in our faith. We are to bear fruit. Verse 8 says that if these things are part of your life, these qualities, then you're neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's two ways to bear fruit as a Christian. You can bear fruit in your life or you can bear fruit in other people's lives. And so if you bear fruit in your own life, that means this question. Has your life been changed by Jesus? Do you see a change? Do you see a change on a, maybe a daily basis or a weekly basis? Can you look back a month ago and see that somehow your life has been changed by your relationship with Christ? Or have you changed other people's lives for that matter? Has anyone been changed by Christ in you? And if you'd honestly say that your life is no different because of your faith in Christ, if you'd honestly say that no one else's life is any different because of your faith in Christ, then Peter would say that you're in danger of being unfruitful. What do you need to do? You need to go back in verses 5 through 7 and add those qualities to the faith that you say you have. We understand in John chapter 15 what it means to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 8, Jesus said in John 15, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Are you bearing fruit today? Are you active in your faith? Are you bearing fruit? And the third question I have for you today is, are you living like a child of God? Are you living like a child of God? You see, you will live like whatever you treasure. If you treasure godliness, if you treasure forgiveness, you're going to live a godly life. But let's be honest. If forgiveness means very little to you, then your life will probably lead to immorality. If it doesn't matter, hey, it doesn't matter whether I'm forgiven or not. Well, what's the motivation in living a moral life then? Verse 9, Peter says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Peter's saying that Christians can be blind. You can be blind by your own immorality. You can be short-sighted in your faith. A short-sighted Christian will not live for Christ, but he'll just sort of live for the moment. Don't be that type of person. Here's what I want you to do today. I would ask that you do this. If you're, if you're a believer and you want to follow Christ on a daily basis, I would ask you to do this. Remember your baptism. Why your baptism? You need to remember your baptism. And if you're not baptized, you need to be. You see, every New Testament believer was baptized immediately upon receiving Christ. Now, why was that? They didn't wait a week. They didn't wait a month. They didn't wait three years. But they are baptized immediately. Why? Because baptism is a powerful reminder 
of the forgiveness that you've experienced. Baptism is a spiritual marker. Back in the Old Testament days, in Joshua's days, they would take stones, large stones, and they would leave markers. They'd build altars, and they would leave different markers in different locations, indicating that God moved in this time. And any time, they could go back, and they would see those stones that they set up, and they would realize, hey, that's where God moved. And generations that followed would come, and they'd hear the story, and they would see those markers, and they knew this is where God moved. Baptism is like that. When you're baptized, especially when you're baptized immediately following your salvation experience, when you receive Christ, it becomes a marker, becomes very memorable. And you can go back to that in your mind. Do you remember your baptism? Do you remember where you were? Were you at a church? In a baptistry? Maybe you were actually at a river or lake or a beach. That would be memorable. Where were you? Do you remember going down into the water and coming back up? Do you remember the person that baptized you? Do you remember who that was? Do you remember the people that were there who witnessed your faith in Christ through your baptism, who saw you go down into the water? See, your baptism signified the forgiveness of your sins. And so when you remember your baptism, you're remembering this. God has cleansed me. God has forgiven me. And if that's true, Scripture says this message to us today. Live like it. Live like it. If you're forgiven, if you're cleansed, you've got to live like it.